all of us in some way seem to be searching for that sustainable excellence in our life. Our guest today, Terry Tucker, he brings just that. A lot of us, we look at our life in a way that drowns us in negativity. To live an excellent life and to have a sustainable excellence within your life, you need to develop certain principles in your life. Terry Tucker has laid out 10 principles in his new book, Sustainable Excellence. 10 Principles to Leading Your Uncommon and Extraordinary Life. Terry Tucker is an extraordinary man, and our conversation is very interesting indeed. What are we complaining about? How do we want to live our life? Our life is very, very short. And when we realize our life is coming to an end, how we live it, that really determines who we are, what our character is. Our guest, Terry Tucker, is one excellent person. Let's not waste any more time and get into this excellent story. Hello, good evening, good morning, good afternoon, wherever you may be around this wild, wacky, and sometimes disturbing world of ours. Yes, that's the intro to the Mindset Podcast, a weekly attempt to open eyes and shedding light on what's really going on in the world, all done by ripping apart the media madness that masquerades as news. Join me, Gareth Davis, every Sunday on the Mindset Podcast. You can find the show on all major podcasting services such as iTunes, Stitcher, and so on. Or you can go directly to the main Mindset website. That's www.mindsetcentral.com. Check out the Mindset Podcast. Bring your curiosity, your opinions, and a sense of humor. And remember that some worldviews are stranger than others. To overcome, you must educate. Educate not only yourself, but educate anyone seeking to learn. We are all dead America. We can all learn something. To learn, we must challenge what we already understand. The way we do that is through conversation. Sometimes we have conversations with others. However, some of the best conversations happen with ourselves. Reach out and challenge yourself. Let's dive in and learn something right now. Today we are joined with Terry Tucker, the author of Sustainable Excellence, 10 Principles to Leading Your Uncommon and Extraordinary Life. Terry, your cornucopia, could you please 
introduce yourself and let people know just a little bit about you, please. Sure. Ed, thanks for having me on. I'm really looking forward to talking to you this afternoon. Um, a little bit about me. So I was born and raised in Chicago, Illinois. I am the oldest of three boys. You cannot tell this from my voice, but I'm six foot eight inches tall and played college basketball at the Citadel in Charleston, South Carolina, uh, despite having three knee surgeries in high school. Uh, when I graduated from college, I moved home to find a job. I'm really going to date myself now, but this was long before the internet was available to, to find jobs and stuff like that. So I was all set to make my mark on my on the world with my you know newly obtained business administration degree. And I kind of look back now and realize what a knucklehead I was that you know I didn't really know anything about business because I had a degree. Fortunately. I was able to find that first job. Uh, I was in the uh, corporate headquarters of Wendy's International, the hamburger chain, in their marketing department. But unfortunately, I ended up living with my parents for the next three and a half years as I helped my mom care for my grandmother and my father, who were both dying of different forms of cancer. In my professional career, as I mentioned, I, I was in the marketing department at Wendy's. Uh, I was a hospital administrator was a customer service manager. I was also a police officer. And while I was a, a police officer, I was an undercover narcotics investigator and a SWAT team hostage negotiator. I then started my own school security consulting business. I was a girls high school basketball coach. I've been a motivational speaker. As you mentioned last year, I became an author. But for the last nine years, I've considered myself pretty much a cancer warrior. And then finally, my wife and I have been married for about 28 years, and our only child, a daughter, is a graduate of the United States Air Force Academy and is an officer in the uh, newly created branch of the military, the Space Force. Awesome. That is awesome. Right on. You know, that, how does that make you feel, Terry, to puff it up just a little bit right here from the get-go? Fascinating daughter. and Yeah, I, I always say she takes after her. Yeah, she takes after her mother a little bit more probably than me. But I, you know, I, I, I can't tell you as parents how proud we were, you know, when she walked across that stage a couple of years ago, got her diploma and she was president of the United States. It's kind of like, yeah, it doesn't get much better than that. Yeah, congratulations. You job well done. That's for Thank sure. Thank you, sir. Thank you very much. So let's go back to your early days, Terry. <laughs> you know, you seem like you've always been motivated to let's go get it. You know, let's do what we can, and I'm going to do the best that I can. You get to play basketball. You did not play JV basketball. You went right into varsity basketball. I, I did. I, You know, when I was... 13 years old, I was six foot five. So I, I, I had a decided advantage over, you know, a lot of uh, yeah. kids my age or even older than me in high school. So, yeah, I, I started um, playing on the varsity when I was a freshman in high school. And, and that kind of ran the gambit uh, all the way through. So, yeah, I, I, I didn't I, I did play my freshman year. I, I would divide my time half the time between the JV team and the varsity team. They kind of had a rule where. Yeah, the JVs played before the varsity, so you can only play one full game. So you know, we kind of, I kind of divided my time depending on how much 
I was needed on the JV team. Although in all honesty, we had a great JV team. We were 18 and 0. We never, nobody ever really challenged us. So it, it, it was just a lot of fun. I mean, I played with a lot of great people and, and was very fortunate. Well, that, that early on basketball career really went on to take you on to play NCAA uh, basketball. And you got a chance to play on the same court as Michael Jordan. How did that feel? It, that was pretty amazing. We, the, the organizers of this tournament, they called it the, the North-South doubleheader. And so they took two teams from North Carolina, which – were North Carolina and North Carolina State, and then two teams from South Carolina, which were my school, the Citadel, and Furman, and we played in the Charlotte Coliseum. So on Friday night, I got to play against Michael Jordan and James Worthy and Sam Perkins and all these great players, um, and that was 1982. And in 1982, Michael Jordan in North Carolina won the national championship. Yeah. So I got to play against one national championship team, and then the next night, Got to play against Jim Valvano and his North Carolina State team, who in 1983 won the national championship. So in the course of a weekend, I was lucky enough, fortunate enough to play against two national championship teams. So it was it was quite a bit of fun, believe me. Yeah, that's wonderful experience. A life filled with these little experiences, you know, sure does add up. And you've lived a life. But you achieved so much in basketball early on, but you started off with knee surgery. You know, you've been plagued with these disastrous things, but you keep going. What was that early history like when you had to go in for knee surgery? And, you know, how did that make you feel? care you know i mean i you know i was like 14 15 years old and i I mean i was still a kid and things were different back then my first two knee surgery i had three in high school my first two two were pre-arthroscopic surgery so i have the large zipper scar on the outside of my right knee and you know you stayed in the hospital for four or five days after my second surgery i was in a cast from my hip to my ankle they they don't do that stuff anymore. They get you up, they get you moving, they get you in physical therapy. So I, I was pretty nervous, uh, you know, going in for surgery. I, I mean, I had my tonsils out when I was five, but I, I didn't remember that. And so it was it was definitely difficult. And then, you know, trying to work your way back, you know, to, to where you could play again and stuff like that really, um, you know, kind of where I get the don't quit, just keep going, you know, just get a little bit better every day. You know, a lot of times I talk to people about, you know, getting better. Well, you know, I, I've got to do X, whatever, you know, whatever X is. But what if you took X and you broke it down to, I'm going to get 1% better every single day. You know, at the end of a month, you're 30% better than when you started. But there isn't that added pressure of, I've got to do all this all at once. You don't. Break it down, get 1% better every single day, and at the end of a month, you're 30% better than when you started. Yeah, baby steps will take you all the way to the end. And if you concentrate on that, that should be your focus. It sure will help in life. Absolutely. So you, you've you got cancer. You beat cancer a couple times. Is that correct? 
Well, I guess technically, no, it's not correct. I mean, I, 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 I started out in 2012. I was a girls high school, high school basketball coach. And I had this callus break open on the bottom of my left foot, right below my third toe. And I didn't give it a lot of thought initially because as a coach, you're on your feet a lot. But when it didn't heal after a couple of weeks, I went to see a podiatrist, a foot doctor friend of mine, and he took an x-ray and he said, Terry, I think you have a cyst in here and I can cut it out. And he did. And he showed it to me. It was just a, a gelatin sack with some white fat in it, no dark spots, no blood, nothing that would give anybody concern. But he sent it off to pathology. And two weeks later, I, he calls me and the more difficulty he's having uh, describing to me what's going on, obviously, the more frightened I am becoming. And so finally, he just laid it out. He said, Terry, been practicing physician for 25 years. I have never seen the form of cancer that you have. You have a rare form of melanoma that presents on the bottom of the feet or the palms of the hands. And so he said, I recommend you go to MD Anderson in Houston and be treated there. And MD Anderson is probably one of the greatest, if not the greatest cancer hospital possibly in the world. So I had a surgery to remove the tumor on the bottom of my foot and all the lymph nodes in my groin. And then when I healed, I was put on a weekly injection of a drug called interferon to help to keep the disease from coming back. And basically what interferon did for me in terms of a side effect was it gave me severe flu-like symptoms for two to three days every week after each injection. So imagine having the flu every week, and I took those weekly injections for five years. Um, and that was just to keep the disease from coming back. That wasn't a cure by any means. Uh, 2017, the, the drug became so toxic to my body that I ended up in the intensive care unit with a fever of 108 degrees, which usually isn't compatible with being alive. But I was at a great hospital that was able to stabilize me and get me to the ICU. So I had to stop the drug. And then in 2000, late 2017, the disease came back. 2018, I had my left foot amputated, came back again in 2019 in my skin. I had two more surgeries. And then last year, an undiagnosed tumor in my ankle grew large enough that it fractured my tibia, my shin bone. And my only recourse right in the middle of the pandemic was to have my left leg amputated. Um, and I also found out that I had tumors in my lungs at that time. So Unfortunately, I really haven't beaten it. I, I've sort of kept it at bay for a while, but at, at this point in time, it's it's kind of looking like it's going to beat me. Well, it hasn't beaten you because you have a great legacy to fulfill whatever you think you may lose, Terry. You've done a wonderful job. I, I'm impressed with what you've done. So Thank you. Speaking about that, how big is your faith in this journey, and how do you walk it? You know, it, faith is incredibly important. I, I talk about uh, some things that have gotten me to this point, and, and one of those is the three Fs, and those are what I call faith, family, and friends. And I've had a, a tremendous faith in God, and you know, and, I, and I've been asked, it's like, you know, do you blame God that you got cancer? You know, and my response is always. I'm like, no, I, I don't think, you know, God got up on a Tuesday morning and checked his to-do list and said, oh, Terry Tucker, cancer today. You know, yeah. I, I just don't think 
I don't think that happened. I, but I certainly think he's provided me with the strength to get through a lot of the things that I had just described to you. And the other thing that I, I really kind of talk about as helping me get through these things are what I call my four truths. And up to those two, I, I just have them on a post-it note. They're just four sentences. <laughs> Excuse me. And I use those these truths to help me make decisions on care, on, on different things I should do in my life and stuff like that. So one is you need to control your mind or it will control you. The second one is we all need to embrace the pain and the discomfort that we experience in life and use it to make us a stronger and more determined individual. The third one is more of a legacy truth, and it's this. What we leave behind is what we weave in the hearts of other people. And then the fourth one is pretty self-explanatory. As long as you don't quit, you can never be defeated. So I, I use those truths to kind of, like I said, help me make decisions and, and to, you know, really kind of set my mind. It's like, you know what? Yeah, this is really going to suck today. But you know what? I got to I got to buck up. I got I got to handle this. I know I can handle it. And, you know, if you think about it, our brains are hardwired to avoid pain and discomfort and to seek pleasure. So, you know, most people want to run away from pain. And when I talk about that second truth about embracing the pain and the discomfort that we all experience, you know, if you think about it, instead of running from it, what if you took it? What if you used it? What if you turned it inside and burned it as fuel or used it as energy? to make you a stronger and more determined individual. And, and I'm not, you know, I don't want your audience to think that I wear an S on my chest and, you know, I have a cape and all that. I don't. I mean, I have bad days. I cry. I get down. I feel depressed and things like that. But we're all going to experience pain in our lives. And it doesn't have to be cancer pain like me. It, you know, you, you could flunk a test at school or break up with your boyfriend or your girlfriend or not get the promotion you think you deserve at work. We're all going to experience pain. Pain is inevitable. Suffering, on the other hand, suffering is optional. Suffering is what you do with that pain. Do you use it to make you stronger and more determined, or do you wallow in it and, you know, feel sorry for yourself and want other people to feel sorry for you? I just choose not to do that. I get in those dark places. I just don't let myself stay there. Yeah, that's very very powerful right there what you just said because i've been through that experience and it's not fun to be in that dark place one of our presidents roosevelt said the only thing you have to fear is fear itself how much fear do you deal with knowing the inevitable might come sooner than you want it to you know, I, I don't spend a lot of time worrying about dying, in all honesty. I, I have, when I found out that, you know, my leg was full of cancer and that I was going to lose it, um, when, when I had that surgery and when I was recovering, I went with my wife to the mortuary, to the cemetery, to the church, and I planned my whole funeral. And I had some people that, you know, kind of gave me some brushback from that. It was like, you know, don't you think that's kind of defeatist? And I'm like, well. Last time I checked, we're all going to die. I don't think anybody's working on a cure for life right now or anything like that, you know. So I, I was like, you know, everybody dies, but not everybody really lives. 
And I feel that I've lived the purpose I was put on this earth for. And so, so death doesn't scare me the way I think it does a lot of people. And I remember there was a, a Native American Blackfoot proverb that I heard years ago that I, that I just love. And it goes like this. When you were born, you cried and the world rejoiced. Live your life in such a way so that when you die, the world cries and you rejoice. That's what I want. That's what I want my life to be like. You know, I'm almost kind of, and I know this is going to sound nuts, but I'm almost excited to see what's on the other side of this life, to see what, you know, what we're, we're going to experience after this, because as I mentioned earlier, I have a very deep faith in God, and hopefully I'll take the love that I have in my heart, and I'll take that back to God, and hopefully whatever's on the other side of this is going to be even better than this life has been. Yeah, that's a good feeling to have, Terry. That's for sure. Absolutely. Putting yourself around the right people and mindset, What what is your thought about this? And how powerful is it in life to place yourself in the right places? I think it's incredibly powerful. You know, if, if I didn't know you, but I knew the five people that you hung out with the most, I could probably tell you a lot about you without ever having met you. So if you think about that, it's all about the people we surround ourselves with. And you, you, you listen to all the stories, especially with young kids about bullying and things like that. I mean, when, when I was 13 years old, as I mentioned, I was six foot five. I had these great big ears that had not, you know, my head had not fallen, thrown into my ears, basically. I looked like Dumbo. And I had a size 14 shoe. And I got teased mercilessly about it. But the thing about that is, you know, and certainly as a police officer, I mean, you'd be off the air if I told you the number of things that I've been called as a cop. But those only hurt. <laughs> If you own them, those only hurt if you take that inside and say, you know, I really care that Mary thinks that, you know, I'm ugly or that Tom thinks that I've got big ears or a big nose or whatever. Those only hurt if you own those. So if you think about your brain only being able to hold one thought at a time, why would you want to make that a negative thought? Why would you want to hang around people who didn't uplift you, who didn't motivate you, who didn't want what was best for you? Those are the people I want to hang around with. If you've got people in your life who don't do that for you, get rid of those people. You don't need them in your life. Surround yourself with people that'll make you better, that'll argue with you, that'll that'll you know be willing to say, "Hey, Terry, I think you're wrong. You know, I, I think I think you should do this, or I think you should do that." That's great. Those are the people that I want in my life because a lot of times those people are right, and I try to to surround myself with people that are smarter than me which doesn't take much, believe me, you know, I mean, there's, uh, most people are smarter than me, but I want to hang around those people because I want to be able to say, Hey, this is what I think and have them say, no, Terry, you're totally off base. Think about this. Oh, I never thought about that. Those people make you better. So putting yourself in situations where you can grow, where you can develop, where you can be around people that care about you. That's how you become successful in life. Yes, and applying, you know, we have to take action and be an active part of our life. And I hear you talk about that quite a bit. So taking that active part, knowing that it's only you that can change your situation. That's a very powerful 
powerful message. It, it is, you know, and if you think about it, I mean, at the end of our lives, we're not going to be judged on what Mary did or what Bob did or what Jane did. We're going to be judged on what we did or we yeah. didn't do or what we thought or what we didn't think. So, I, I mean, I don't I think that's a good point that you make. You know, it's not about other people in the end. I mean, you can want to emulate other people. You know, they have good qualities. You want to be like them. That's great. But in the end, it's it's what you do. It's what you think. It's how you act. That is very true, Terry. So let's dive deeper into Terry a little bit, because a lot of people are going to look at Terry and say, wow, I want to look at Terry like he's my hero. But who is Terry's hero? So I think my parents would really be the people I consider my heroes. They, they, you know, they set the tone. They, they really imparted the importance of family in our lives. I, I have a, a middle brother who was drafted by the Cleveland Cavaliers and the National Basketball Association. And my younger brother was a pitcher at the University of Notre Dame. And so athletics was a huge part of our family growing up. And, you know, there was a lot of what I call divide and conquering. You know, mom would go to one brother's game and, you know, dad would go to another game and things like that. And I remember when my dad was, was dying of cancer, I, I was living at home. I was probably 25, 26 years old. And my youngest brother was in high school and he had a basketball game one night. And I told my dad, I said, you know, I don't think I'm going to the game. I said, I'm going to, I'm going to go work out after work. And my dad was like, no, you're not. I'm like, what do you mean? No, no, I'm not. I, I'm like 25 years old. I'm an adult. I, I have my own job. I have, you know, He's like, no, your brother has the game. You are going to support him. And, of course, obviously I went to the game because that's that's what our family was about, uh, caring for each other, about supporting each other, about making sure that, you know, we took care of each other. So family was incredibly important. And I think my, my mom and dad, you know, emulated that behavior. And I think that behavior has carried over as as my brothers and I have had our own families and things like that. So. I'd say my parents were probably my heroes. That's good heroes to have. And I'm I'm so glad to hear somebody actually say that, especially in our world today, Terry. I want to dive into your hostage negotiator and police time in your life. That must have been very difficult. And some of the situations you might have seen it, it, could have been pretty uh, tense. What type of training do you need to become a SWAT hostage negotiator? So basically, you there there are two parts of SWAT, or at least there were in the Cincinnati Police Department. There there are the tactical guys or and girls, women uh, who you know they surround the house, they have the guns, they have all that kind of stuff, and then there are the negotiators, and we. We applied just like anybody would apply to join SWAT. And then, you know, we had to go through a physical fitness test. You had to go through a psychological test. You had to go through a battery of interviews. And then you, you got chosen to be part of the team. And then it was basically kind of on-the-job training. Every month we trained, we, we ran through different scenarios. We worked with a psychologist, you know, and 
we would kind of debrief. Well, did you think about this? And what if that happened? What would you do there? And stuff like that. So it was very much, uh, you know, they didn't just stick you out there and say, okay, go negotiate with this guy that wanted to kill himself. It, it was very much, uh, you started out sort of gathering intelligence at the scene, and then you might be what we call second chair. So you're sitting right there with the person negotiating, you're listening, and you're writing that person notes as intelligence is gathered. So somebody may say, oh, okay, this guy's barricaded, he, he wants to kill himself, and it's because he had a fight with his mother. So you might get a note that says, don't, don't bring up his mother, don't talk about his mother. Like, okay, that's good information to know. You know, you don't want to get him any more upset by bringing up something that's, you know, that you don't, you don't need to. But the thing about, if you think about us as, as law enforcement officers, most of what we did was face to face, whether it was a traffic stop where, you know, we stop you for speeding or whether it's a radio run where it's a family trouble run or whether we're knocking on your door and saying, Hey, hospital, you know, your grandmother's passed away or something like that, whatever it's face to face as negotiators, we had to figure things out based on what people were saying, what they weren't saying and how they were saying it. And so that was kind of a, a nuance, kind of an art, you know, that you sort of had to pick up on. And, you know, like I said, sometimes we'd go down a rabbit hole that would be like, you know, the guy would be like, no, you idiot. That's not what I'm talking about. Okay. I missed that, you know, and, and you sort of had to, back up and regroup but that but one of the most important things about that job was establishing trust and so we never lied to people i mean we always had people that were like well you know i'll come out i'll put the gun down but you got to promise me i'm not going to jail and it would be like well i'm sorry i can't promise you that when you come out you are going to go to jail but let's talk about you know and then you try to deflect the conversation into something more positive so we never lied to people and we had to develop that trust with them. And the reason we never lied, other than it's just flat out wrong, is because a year from now, two years from now, three years from now, we may be right back negotiating with that person again on something entirely different or maybe the same problem. And we never wanted them to say, hey, you lied to me before, because if that happened, then that trust factor is gone and you might as well just go home and get somebody else to do it because you're not going to be effective doing it. Yeah, I agree a hundred percent, Terry. <laughs> you know, I, I have an upcoming episode about police relations. He actually teaches the police officers and uh, he's a college professor. We speak about that. And it's one of the hard things that people don't realize you guys only have the information that you have and sometimes you have to act it's it's a job i wouldn't want to have that's for sure uh let's talk a little bit about your book terry how did you come up with your book and what led you to writing the book so the book is really was really born out of two conversations i had one was with a a former player that I had coached who had moved to the Colorado area where my wife and I live. And we had had dinner with her and her fiance. And I remember saying to her one night, you know, I'm excited that you're living close to us and I can watch you find and live your purpose. And she got real quiet for a while. And then she looked at me and she's like, well, coach, what do you think my purpose is? I said, I have no idea what your purpose is, but that's what your life 
should be about. It should be about taking the time to find that purpose. And then once you find it, go ahead and live it. So that was one conversation. And then I had another conversation with a young man in college who reached out to me and he wanted to know what I thought were the most important things he should learn to not only be successful in, in business or in his job, but to be successful in life. And I didn't want to give him the, you know, get up early, work hard, help others kind of, not that those aren't important. Those are incredibly important, but I've, I kind of felt they had been done already. And so I wanted to see if I could give him something that maybe went a little bit deeper that kind of maybe would reach into his soul, so to speak. So I spent some time and I, I wrote some notes and eventually I came up with these 10 ideas, these 10 principles. And so I sent them to him. And then I stepped back and I was like, you know, I've got a story that fits underneath this principle, or I know somebody whose life relates this principle. So literally in, in April of 2020, I had my leg amputated. In June of 2020, I started chemotherapy for the tumors in my lungs. And during that three-month period in between those two things, I sat down at the computer every day and I built stories underneath each of the principles and that's how sustainable excellence, the 10 principles to leading your uncommon extraordinary life came about. And once the book was released, I was all about, you know, I got to sell books. I got to sell books. I got to sell books. And I had a, a best-selling author over in the United Kingdom who I'd connected with, <coughs> excuse me, uh, on LinkedIn. And he kind of pulled me aside. He said, no, Terry, you're missing the point. Your job is not to sell books. Your job is to help people. If you help people, the books will sell themselves. And I was so glad that he he said that to me because I, I didn't write the book to get famous or to make money or even to get more speaking engagements. I wrote the book to try to help people. And I think he kind of put that in perspective for me. So I don't really spend a lot of time worrying about, you know, how many copies is the is the book sold or stuff like that. I I'm more interested in the stories. You know, I had a when it was first released, an 87-year-old man who bought the book, who read it, and then contacted me, and he said, you know, if I would have had these principles when I was younger, I would have had a, a much better life. And that, to me, said, okay, maybe I'm on to something here. Maybe maybe these principles will make a difference in people's lives. Yeah, I, I believe that 100% also. It's a great book. So do you feel that the book meets your expectations? Um, yes. And no. So, and, and the reason I said, yes, I, I, it, may, it met my expectations, but the book is a book about success, about how to be successful in life, you know, and I, I think that's important, but I'd like the next book and, and hopefully there'll be a second book to be about another word that also begins with the letter S and that's significance. You know, success is what we do for ourselves. You know, we're, a successful podcaster or, or a successful police officer or whatever we are. But significance is more about what we do for other people. How do we help? How does our life help other individuals? And and at this point in my life, I think that's more important. Now, don't get me wrong. I think you can be both. I think you can be successful and significant. But I really, at this point in my life, think our lives should be more about service and how how do we use our lives to be significant in the lives of other people. 
Yeah, it's a, it's a great book. And I, I think you've got something to build on there for sure. One of my questions was, do you see any other books coming? And I hear a hint that, yes, there is books coming. So I'm glad you are deciding to do that. That's a great thing. One of the best things I like about the book and the best principle that I like is number nine. Listen more than you talk. How important is this in our life, Terry? Well, you know, it's funny you say that because it, it inevitably, whenever people look at the principles, there's always one that they're drawn to. You know, uh. for me, it, for me, it's the one about you know most people think with their fears and their insecurities instead of using their minds, mm -hmm. and, and and probably because I've done that a lot. But listening, I, I put that in there because that's one of the things that I learned in um, you know, as a negotiator, as a hostage negotiator, the importance of listening, but not listening to respond, but listening to understand. So, you know, Ed, you say something and, you know, I mean, so many times and I'm guilty of this a lot, you know, we're in a conversation and you're talking but, you know, I'm not listening to what you're saying. I'm just formulating my own thought so that I can, you know, throw something out into the conversation. That's not that's listening to respond. That's not listening to what you just said. And it, as important as what you said is why you said what you said. So, you know, you, you make a comment. Where are you coming from on that? That's listening to understand, not just what was said, but also where the person's coming from. And I think. If we did that more as a society with each other, you know, not hurry up and talk because I want to talk, but no, sit back and listen to what was said and try to understand why it was said and what context it was delivered. I think we would, just as a society, as, as a country, whatever you want to use as a, as, as a denominator there, what, what's the reason? If, if we can understand each other, we can accomplish anything that faces us. Oh, yes. That, that's power right there. And, you know, you, you make a very good point there that a lot of us, we, we just listen to make a comment. I find that so powerful. And maybe we need to take time to actually draw from that and learn to listen a little better. So I'm glad you said that. So, Terry, what was the most memorable moment about writing the book and getting it published? Actually, it was kind of fun to get it published because I I, I had a, a connection here in Colorado, uh, a police officer who was actually at uh, the Dayton Police Department, which is just north of Cincinnati, and I was a Cincinnati police officer who, who I met, and he turned me on to this gentleman, Scott Silverian and Scott's wife, uh, Leah. And they're an interesting couple because Scott was uh, a number of things. He was a, he, he ran a county drug task force. He was a police chief down in Louisiana. And one day a friend of his said, hey, would you mind coming out to California and putting on a presentation <laughs> for authors who would like to understand police tactics and incorporate them in their books so that, you know, they, what they're saying is, is accurate. 
And he's like, sure, no problem. Well, he ends up going out there and doing this presentation, and he ends up meeting his wife, Leah, and they they get married. Uh, she is still, I think she has like 34, 35 New York Times bestselling fiction books. Wow. So she's very, very, uh, very much accomplished author. And Scott, uh, in, in addition to being a police officer, he's got a, a doctorate degree, a PhD, and the two of them set up a church and, and they do a lot of writing and they set up a not-for-profit publishing company. And so uh, my friend here in Colorado put me in touch with Scott and we have formed a great relationship, a great friendship. And he helped me to kind of get through. I didn't know anything about publishing. And, you know, when you I, I've never had a baby, but I'm sure if you've ever write a book, it's probably as close to having a baby in terms <laughs> of, you know, this is mine, you know. And but then when you get editors who are like, you know, you got to change this or you should probably take that out or this doesn't make sense and stuff like that, you kind of get indignant. You know, like, well, what are you talking about? You know, this is my book. How dare you? And then you think about it, you know, and it's like, well, wait a minute, this is their expertise. This is what they get paid to do. This is what they're good at. And I always used to say, instead of saying no, I'm like, let me sleep on it. Let me, you know, let me, let me think about it. Let me sleep on it. I'll think uh, in the morning. And I, I bet 99% of the time I ended up doing what they suggested, either adding some more content or taking something out that didn't make sense or, or whatever it was. Because I, when, I, when I started to sit back and not take it personally, but be like, okay, this is, this is uh, you know, writing a book, publishing a book, it's a business. Let's face it. I mean, you know, people make their living doing this. Why not go with what the experts? I mean, that would be like, you know, somebody telling me how to be a policeman who'd never been a policeman, you know, yeah. why won't you do what the experts tell you to do? So that, that was, it was a great experience for me. It was a great learning experience. And, and I would certainly love to work with them again. And hopefully there'll be a second book and we'll see what happens. Yeah, that must've been a great experience for sure. You know, I, I often wonder about that publishing experience myself and I might traverse down that road apparently who knows uh we covered that you're going to write more books do you have an idea of how many books you might decide to write i, I don't to be honest with you you know i i never thought of myself as, as a writer as, as an author you know but I, I think all of us have at least one book inside of us you know it's just a matter of whether we can we can get it out and, you know, pull it out and get it down on paper. And, you know, people always ask me, you know, what was your secret to writing a book? And I'm like, I didn't really have any secret. I said, I just made a, I had two rules and, and, and I followed these to the T. I said, my first rule was I would write at least one page every day, a minimum of one page every day. And my second rule was I would not edit anything until I had the first draft done. And, you know, I mean, there were days, honestly, Ed, that I, I wrote garbage. I mean, I was like, okay, this is terrible. Why am I even writing this? But because I said, you know, I'll write at least one page a day, you know, I did that. And then there were other days where it was like, oh, you know, this is good. You know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm comfortable with this. I'm happy with this. I'm proud of this. And so, you know, sometimes I'd write, you know, four, five, six, seven, maybe 10 pages in a day. So, it, it, you know, I, I, I didn't limit myself. But I, I gave myself a, a minimum of writing at least one page. 
But like I said, sometimes there were days I wrote 10 pages and, and that. So it, it was just, it was a great experience and, and one that I'd certainly be willing to do again. Yeah, very, very good tactics you have there. And it refers back to what we talked about earlier in the episode. Baby steps will get you there. Just put a little baby step each day in front of you and achieve it. How did you decide on the cover of the book? Because I love what you did with the cover. It's kind of unique. I wish I could. Yeah, I wish I could take credit for that. I, I mean, part of the publishing process was I, I had, uh, you know, cover designers. And so I worked with them and, you know, it's like, okay, 10 principles, maybe there should be some kind of a pathway or, you know, you, you know, you kind of start throwing stuff out and they're like, you know, they'll ask, I mean, they ask you stupid questions. That you, well, at least I thought it was like, you know, what are your favorite colors? It's like, who cares what my favorite colors are? You know, but that was just something that, you know, they wanted to get Right. And and the first couple covers were like, no, no, I don't like that. You know, I showed it to my wife, I showed it to my daughter, I showed it to my brothers and like, what do you guys think? And, you know, uh, yeah, yeah, I like this one or I don't like that one. And, but really, once they came up with that cover design, it was just it kind of was like, yeah, boom, that's the one that's, you know, that's where we're going. So it's really kind of a, a process of, of what do you like? And then getting again with people that that's what they do for a living. They design covers for books based on titles and, you know, things like that. So that, that's kind of how it came, came to be. Well, that's certainly awesome. And it draws you in that, that cover actually makes you want to open the book. Uh, it's out now on Amazon. The link's going to be in the show. Actually, Terry's book I'm going to have in our book bundle giveaway. So I've already got a couple copies of the book. I highly encourage you to go out and get your copy of this book. This is not an ending, but a new beginning for a story that will impact so many in their lives. Terry, I can't thank you enough for writing this and sharing your story. Is there any call to action? that you'd like for people to have for you? You know, I'll leave you with, with one story and, uh, and hopefully this, this will get people to, to act. So I've always been a big fan of Westerns growing up. You know, my mom and dad used to let me stay up and watch Gunsmoke and Wild Wild West and things like that. 1993, the movie Tombstone came out and it starred Val Kilmer as a man by the name of John Doc Holliday, and it starred Kurt Russell as a man by the name of Wyatt Earp. Now, Doc Holliday and Wyatt Earp were two living, breathing human beings who actually walked on the face of the earth. They are not made up characters just for the movie. And Doc was called Doc because he was a dentist by trade. He was pretty much a gunslinger and a card shark. And Wyatt had pretty much been a law enforcement officer, a a deputy sheriff, a deputy U.S. marshal and stuff. So these two men from incredibly opposite backgrounds form this very close friendship. And at the end of the movie, Doc is dying at a sanitarium in Glenwood Springs, Colorado. And the real Doc Holliday died at that sanitarium. He's buried in the Glenwood Springs Cemetery. 
And Wyatt, at this point in his life, is destitute. He has no money, he has no job, he has no prospects for a job. So every day he comes to play cards with Doc so the two men can pass the time. And they're talking about what they want out of life. And Doc says, I was in love with my cousin when I was younger, but she joined a convent over the affair, and she's all I ever wanted. And he looks at Wyatt and he says, what about you, Wyatt? What do you want? And Wyatt says, I just want to lead a normal life. And Doc looks at him and says, there's no normal, there's just life. And get on with living yours. You know, Ed, you and I probably know people out there who are just sitting back and like, you know what, when this happens, then I'll have a normal life. When that happens, then I'll have a successful life. When this happens, then I'll be significant in somebody's life. Don't wait for your life to come to you. Get out there, find the reason, find the purpose that you were put on the face of this earth and live it. Because if you do, I can promise you two things are going to happen. At the end of your life, you're going to have a whole lot more peace in your life, and you're going to be a whole lot happier. And I'll end it with that. Well, I do thank you, Terry, so much for being with us. That is so much power in one tiny podcast, and you deliver it very well, sir. Thank you. Well, thank you for having me on. You know, it's people like you that give folks like me a, a forum, and hopefully between our conversation, we're going to make a difference in the lives of members of your audience. Amen. Thank you for joining us today. If you found this podcast enlightening, entertaining, educational in any way, please share, like, subscribe, and join us right back here next week for another great episode of Dead America Podcast. I'm Ed Waters, your host. Enjoy your afternoon, wherever you may be.